You're listening to Marcus Sahaba Online Radio Podcast. What's up, people? The time of the evening uh, where you join us on your popular show, uh, which is uh, Medical Files, Medical Files on the uh, platforms of Marcus Sahaba, the voice of Ahlul Sunnah Wal Jama'ah. Let me welcome uh, you all uh, with uh, our outstanding doctor, Dr. Mario Shonga, who's an emergency medicine doctor with a uh, hearty assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And uh, good evening to you, doctor. How are you doing? Good evening. I'm doing well and good evening to all the listeners. Yeah, uh, Mario. You know, I can tell you that uh, it's been some time uh, since we spoke to you, uh, but uh, you've been very busy. Uh, you know, you are the type of doctor that uh, always uh, does a refresher course or, you know, you keep up to speed. And, you know, perhaps a question to pose to you, how important is it for doctors of today to do what you do? You know, keep in touch with the, the latest, uh, Dr. Mario. Uh, it is utterly important. Uh, I'm currently on a refresher for advanced cardiac life support. Uh, it's a two-day course. I'm currently in it uh, day one, just passed today. Tomorrow will be day two with a short examination. And it just keeps us in check with knowing what's happening with the latest with um, cardiac events like heart attacks, strokes, this, these types of um, entities, which, you know, obviously are very time delineated conditions. So we are very, very dependent on the, you know, the latest research to say, you know, are things that we're currently doing still relevant in 2023 or have they actually expired in terms of validity? Um, I learned quite a few new things today, actually. Very, very interesting things about strokes and heart attacks, actually. You know, Mario, you talk about strokes and heart attack and uh, people getting depression, and we find that lots of uh, young people are succumbing to suicide. Uh, suicide. I mean, I mean, that's uh, one of the reasons being uh, uh, the hectic life uh, that uh, they're surrounded by, uh, perhaps, uh, you know, with all the unsavory incidents of high uh, murder rate in this country, uh, when you're looking at uh, looting, stealing, and so forth. Uh, I mean, the uh, youth don't have job opportunities. Uh, uh, I believe, uh, I don't know, 100,000 uh, young teenagers uh, getting pregnant and so forth. How is that impacting on young people, uh, you know, taking their lives and succumbing to... Uh, maybe depression. Uh, how many young people get strokes, uh, Mario? Well, <laughs> young people having strokes is not common. Uh, but the age of onset of strokes is getting younger. Uh, when I say younger, you know, uh, in the past, like let's say 30, 40 years ago, the average onset of a stroke was usually in the 40 to 50 year old demographic. We are starting to see younger people in their 40s, early 40s, and even late 30s developing strokes. Um, strokes are a major uh, driver of health intervention, health studies around the world, a lot of research groups on it. And what they're finding is still that our diets and our exercise and our you know, sedentary lifestyles are the major drivers behind this trend. Uh, so much studies have actually gone into this. I'm actually currently reading a book uh, about uh, metabolism and how the brain is involved in metabolism and our drive to whether to overeat or undereat. It's called The Hungry Brain. It's a very, very interesting book. 
And, you know, it's all to do with your reward centers in your brain. So when we say these things are lifestyle diseases, it's because we're talking about the way that we are brought up, the way we develop our relationships with food. And these are major drivers. Now, you mentioned depression very, uh, very uh, quickly there. Yes, we as a country are at an all-time low. We are, you know, we are we're experiencing so many things from economic drivers to social unrest and all of these things. But depression itself has, has not ever resulted in any cardiovascular disease, but we are seeing an upswing in mental health diseases. You're correct. Depression, anxiety, all of these things are definitely on the rise, and it is a factor of our social practice and our social behavior and our social interaction. We, uh, you know, the one thing I think we can be proud of as, as South Africans is to have our common root belief, no matter your religion, no matter your your background of being part of Ubuntu, which is, you know, I am because you are. And that social integration, unfortunately, is taking a beating. And if we need these social aspects of our health to be addressed together with our physical health. So, you know, and yes, does it impact your cardiovascular disease? Yes, it does in the long run, because if you're depressed, you're not going to eat a healthy diet. It's as simple as that. So to, to summarize very simply, number one, Cardiovascular diseases such as strokes and heart attack, mainly dietary, mainly sedentary lifestyle, you know, smoking, excessive alcohol use, uh, poor relationship with your dietary health. So, you know, eating foods, overeating, all of these things, but they are definitely supplanted by things like depression, anxiety. You see, Mario, I mean, the, uh, the, 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 you, you spoke about, you know, your dietary law and so forth and, you know, the type of what you eat. And But I think the biggest, uh, you know, substance abuse and alcoholism in this country is uh, virtually it's gone out of control. And as they say, when it comes to alcoholism or alcohol, imbibing alcohol, we are perhaps the leading uh, nation on Earth. Uh, it's a very uh, sad t- uh, title to have. But indeed, uh, you know, if... You know, alcoholism causes so many, you know, illnesses. It destroys families. It destroys the individual. Uh, it leads to, as you sort of spoke about, depression. Uh, why is it so freely available, uh, Mario? I think that's the old, uh, it's an age-old uh, debate. Is it the alcohol that is the problem or is it the people that are the problem? Um, and I think <laughs> it, depending, it depends who you speak to. You will always run into this debate, and it's always very difficult to answer. I think um, alcohol is an entity that you know you cannot restrict purely because by restricting it, you infringe on people's freedoms and rights uh, as guaranteed under the Constitution. What I think is more relevant is the underlying process. How does a person develop a poor relationship with alcohol? And I'm actually going to even say drugs. Uh, and and, and when, amongst the drugs, I'm including sugar. The one drug that nobody talks about is sugar. 
which has the highest addiction rate in the world. So when we look at it at a more broad perspective like this, we look at addiction is an issue of social processes, and it actually represents a maladaption of a person to their environment and to their various um, entities in their life, whether it be dietary, whether it be physical and all of these things. So you can cross the spectrum all the way from things like sexual addiction to you, you name it, it doesn't matter what the addiction. So I think, you know, we classically have this very negative uh, attitude towards alcohol in itself. And we feel that somehow by restricting alcohol, uh, we would actually cure the social ills. But unfortunately, that that is only one aspect of it. And many research projects around the world, and if we look at the history from the prohibition times, has shown that people become very resilient and they will create underground trades, black markets, you name it. So you can try and restrict it, but I think that would be an unnecessary burden on the states because they would have to enforce so much policing and it would take so much effort. It will be the same situation that we're facing with uh, narcotics at the moment, which takes up so much resources to, to try and mandate. So I think uh, one thing that we need to address is that when you deal with somebody who has a problematic relationship with alcohol, is to realize the alcohol is only maybe one-tenth of the problem and the other nine-tenths is who are they, where did they come from, what, what upbringing did they have, and what has our society, so that's you and me, we're not talking about the boogeyman, we're talking about you and me, what social stresses have we placed on this human being that has decided to find solace in the bottle? Well, I'll tell you, uh, Mario, let's have a, uh, a healthy discussion on that with the unhealthy bottle, right? I mean, uh, I mean, uh, you know, Islam uh, uh, actually uh, uh, forbids the whole thing. But, uh, you know, when you look at it, I mean, look at cigarette. I mean, you take a, a, a cigarette and you take a, a bottle of alcohol, which is more dangerous. So, but look at the restrictions on cigarette or you will must, uh, you know, you will get cancer. You will do that, but you but you go to the supermarket. You are freely buying all these. Uh, you know, the alcohol is this freely. Okay, when there is a accident, they say, oh, you was under the influence of alcohol. That's a mitigating factor. Yeah. When there is a GBV, yeah. oh, you was under the influence of alcohol. You know, that is a mitigating factor. Like you know, you gave like yeah. a mitigating story. You know, it's a, a relationship between the bottle and the human being. I mean, if you cut it, yeah. the vice from the root. From the roots, it won't take place. But anyway, we'll uh, leave that. Uh, you, you, you see where I'm coming from, uh, Mario? The hypocrisy I of do, uh, I the, do. The, 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 the powers that be, they are very selective in what they decide and what they, you know, what, what, what will be, what, what won't be. But, uh, you know, we'll leave it at that because, uh, you know, in my yes. eyes, uh, you're a gentleman. Yes. I, I really love talking to you. And one day I'd love to be sitting in your company, you know, face to face and having a meal with you. And perhaps we can, you know, explore many things together because you are a, you know, a very sober, wonderful gentleman to talk to. And I really appreciate you, uh, Mario. I, I actually mean that from the bottom of my heart. I don't know if you get the same vibe Thank from you me. Thank you so much. Yes, absolutely. I, look, I, I thoroughly enjoy being on this show and speaking to you and your team. 
everybody is so genuine, so warm, and so loving in their in their reception of me, and I feel so welcome on the show. Yeah, you're becoming a part of the family. And, uh, you know, well, we're looking at a lot of questions here on my screen. And uh, let me go uh, start off with the first one here. It says, Assalamu alaikum. And uh, you should know, you know, when we say Assalamu alaikum, we mean peace be upon you. It's like the uh, greeting that Jesus gave, you know, like shalom, uh, salam, meaning yeah. peace. So when I tell you Assalamu alaikum, yeah. I mean peace be upon you. So uh, when our listeners say Assalamu alaikum, so you understand where they're coming from. So they're saying you know, peace, Absolutely. not uh, not not only on Shafat Khan or the listeners of because it's a uh, peace on you too. So it says Assalamu alaikum. It's a, fir- a Firoza Khaki. I went for surgery. I found out that I'm allergic to a paracetamol. As soon as I came out of surgery, the nurse uh, brought me a painkiller. I said, "What is it?" She said, "Paracetamol." What would have happened if I took it without knowing? And what were my rights? Jazakallah for excellent program. Uh, excellent question there, Mario. Yes, uh, yes. So the, it's obviously, you know, in the, obviously prior to any procedure, whether you're in casualty, whether you're going to surgery, whether you're in the ward, it doesn't matter where you are. Part of the initial history taking uh, for any patient or what uh, traditionally was called medical clerking is to find out your demographics, who you are, how old you are, male, female, uh, you know, what are your chronic medication and uh, what are your social habits, smoking alcohol, and then obviously what are you allergic to. Um, These are very, very important questions. So if it has been documented by whichever healthcare provider you're uh, engaged with, and you know, I think the hospital setting is a unique setting because you you're exposed to multiple healthcare providers, and uh, so you've got doctors, you've got nurses, you've got physios, you've got OTs, you've got so many, and the communication of this information is a classical problem world over. Uh, I don't think it's uniquely a South African problem. I think anywhere in the world you go, it's it's always it's always a problem. And there's been many many attempts, uh, you know, via things like task force to address how best to communicate this information between the various stakeholders in the current uh, clinical interaction with the client to say how can we avoid these types of things. So I think in that situation, if I'm hearing correct. It sounds like, you know, you've got two sets of nurses. You've got the ward nurses who would be very much aware. The anesthetist is obviously aware, but maybe the nurse who brought the medication either is a shift change or it's the theater nurse, and the theater nurse is trying her best to alleviate uh, the patient's pain but may not be aware of that one piece of information. So that, that for me, is probably a little bit of a breakdown of communication. Um, I always advise patients, at every point, if they have any concerns and, you know, like pain medicine, I think always just say, look, uh, I know I've told you guys before, but uh, just so we're clear, I am paracetamol allergic. Uh, but obviously there is an onus on the healthcare providers to make sure once they've been notified of it, to uh, not provide them with that particular medication. Now, to answer the question of what would have happened, 
uh, it varies. Uh, you know, um, allergies in themselves has gone under a very deep revision uh, in terms of what uh, drug allergies and all of these are. Take, for instance, the penicillin allergy, which I think most people are aware of. There's studies that show at the moment that if you've had one uh, allergy, allergic reaction to penicillin, for, uh, for argument's sake, after a subsequent amount of years of more than 10 years, the chance of you actually developing an acute reaction actually diminishes by more than 50%. So the answer to that question is, I'm not sure. It, it, you know, allergies are not an exact science. I can't tell you that because you've had one acute reaction that every time you receive it, you definitely will have a reaction. Will, sometimes will, it won't happen. Uh, but what uh, what can happen is, is that, uh, you know, we, we like to minimize risk. So we'll always say, you know what, let's, uh, let's minimize risk and avoid that. So we'll say, you know what, even though the chances of a, a second reaction is low, we're not going to take that chance. So I think that in that sense, I can't say definitely we've had a reaction, but I would say we would try to avoid it. Thank you for that, uh, Dr. Mario Shonga. Uh, this question says, Assalamu alaikum. I enjoyed the last uh, program of, uh, of Dr. Shonga. Happy to see on ad he will be back. He is a stroke and unforeseen category illness. And how is a stroke patient handled in an ambulance? Jazakallah, uh, Shafi in uh, Umshlanga. When he's telling you Jazakallah in Arabic, it means thank you. So uh, yeah, you're learning a little bit of Arabic here. Perhaps when you go to uh, uh, Dubai and, uh, you know, uh, the Emiratis, you'll know, Jazakallah, Alhamdulillah, Assalamu Alaikum, Kefahal, how are you, and all that. Hey, your Arabic will be, you know, up to speed. And maybe, yeah, your bank balance will speed up too. <laughs> uh, Mario, how do, you, <laughs> how do you answer Shafi from Umshlanga? Umshlanga, all right. So, um Strokes are, and heart attacks are both very much preventable diseases. And I think people uh, view these, you know, a medicine, unfortunately, uh, is still practiced around the world in a very reactive form where we are waiting for things to happen and then act upon them when they happen. But primary health, and it, which is taking over medicine in a great way uh, in this uh, current decade, is saying that we need to emphasize on prevention rather than waiting for a stroke to happen. Now, strokes and heart attacks are both examples of conditions where blood supply to the brain and the heart is diminished. It's diminished by what? It's diminished by developing atherosclerotic plaques in the blood vessels. These are plaques that are made up of uh, cholesterol and various other constituents, and they basically decrease the blood supply till the point where they actually cut off the blood supply to a critical minimum where the tissue on the other side of that blood vessel does not get oxygen and dies off. So, you know, in terms of uh, the, the question, the question is, uh, if I understand correctly, is how how do you you know how does one person know what to do and what can be done in the ambulance? Well, it's a matter of what in medicine we call perfusion. 
So everything that is done from there on is to maximize perfusion. And if we're talking about a stroke, we will attempt to give what we call anticoagulants. I think in colloquial terms, they would like to call it a clot buster. So this is a, a drug that basically breaks down a clot that is also obscuring the blood supply. That is the, the, the clot formation is why it's so abrupt, why it happens so quickly. So you've had this narrowing developing over months and years and all of that. And then all of a sudden you have an event where you have a stroke. And that is from clot formation on that atherosclerotic plaque that we're speaking of. The, the blood vessels in lining is abnormal along that atherosclerotic plaque. So in the ambulance, we maximize IV drugs. So we want to give fluids, number one, to try and push uh, fluids past that uh, area of the brain. Uh, where the, the blood supply is narrowed. You want to maximize oxygen per milliliter of blood, so you are going to give oxygen. If the patient is still conscious, you will do it via face mask. If the patient is unconscious, obviously we will put in a breathing tube to go into the lungs directly, what we call an endotracheal tube. Um, these are the two main things. Uh, in terms of the stroke and heart attack, this is where we start to differentiate in their management. In a heart attack, we will give our first dose of aspirin. Uh, and also, in terms of a heart attack with the chest pain, we will also give drugs to alleviate the chest pain. These can be done in the ambulance while uh, the ambulance tech, if the patient is having a stroke, he will assess to confirm the stroke. Uh, they basically check for four things. We call it a fast analysis. The fast analysis consists of, consists of facial droop, arm drift, or what we call pronated drift, slurred speech, and also what we call the timing of it. So we, we look at the rapidity of the timing of this uh, event. So those are four things that the ambulance crew are going to assess. And by the time they get to the, the uh, emergency unit, they will present this information to the emergency doctor. From the heart attack side, they would have performed a 12-lead ECG if it's available in the, in the ambulance, or they would have done a standard 3-lead ECG to look for what we call ischemic changes on the ECG. So this would be confirmatory information which they could present again to the emergency doctor. So on arrival, the doctor will be like, okay, what have you done? And the, the emergency technician on the ambulance will be, okay, I've diagnosed a stroke, he's fast positive, I've given oxygen, I've given IV fluids. If it's a heart attack, I've done an ECG, I've confirmed that there is uh, ischemic changes on the ECG, I've given uh, aspirin, and I have given uh, GTN spray under the tongue to alleviate pain, I might have given morphine to alleviate pain. So this would fast track the transition into the emergency services where we would now proceed to definitive treatment. Definitive treatment of these two conditions is probably a whole show on its own if I could discuss that. But I think this is in terms of the pre-hospital um, management that the, the question is coming from. So I think those are the things. But what can you do at home is also very, very important. 
when a person is having a stroke, it's actually recommended that they remain in a lying position if they can. And the same thing with a heart attack, if they can remain in the lying position, this allows for a decrease on the work on the heart and it allows perfusion to the brain to be easier because you are eliminating gravity. So uh, those are sort of the minimum things that you can do at home. Uh, and particularly with the heart attack, if, you, if the patient is not on an aspirin, hasn't received an aspirin that day, you're more than welcome to give them the aspirin, but ask them to chew it, not swallow it, chew it. Yeah, we got it there. And uh, uh, once again, you know, really thorough in, uh, you know, how you uh, uh, present yourself uh, to us. And, uh, you know, really, I'm sure the listeners are enjoying that. Uh, this question here says, Assalamu alaikum to all. Excellent uh, medical program. When should an ambulance be called? Sometimes uh, people just call an ambulance if they have a bad cough for attack. Samir. Yeah, some people just say, hey, I've got an attack. I've got a coughing attack. Should they call the ambulance? <laughs> uh, I think to Samir, uh, I can appreciate what he's saying. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, this, this actually boils down to not uh, abusing the medical services for minor or what we call uh, green code diagnoses in emergency terms. These are conditions that could either wait to the following day or could be seen by the general practitioner and don't warrant an emergency reaction, if I may put it that way. Um, but I find, uh, you know, uh, in terms of all of this is that, well, you know, each person's interpretation of what an emergency is, is very different. And it is very difficult for one to absolutely educate every single South African, all six to seven million of us, uh, sorry, 50 odd million of us, uh, to say, you know, the, these are emergencies, these are not emergencies. And that now takes you into the gray area of how much can the layman be able to absorb all these information because, I mean, if you think about it, we go to medical school for six to seven years, depending on which medical school you go to, to be able to understand the intricate natures of these various emergencies and so forth. So I think from that, uh, the best answer I can give is that if any clinical presentation worries you as a person, that you feel that there is a sense of impending doom or worry about progression uh, of the condition to be worse off, you rather get help as soon as possible. If it's during the day and you feel it's of moderate nature, you can always approach your GP. But for any reason where you feel like I'm not even going to make it to my GP, I'm not going to make it anywhere, please, by all means, we rather get you into the ambulance there and say, you know what, it's nothing than not. So I think uh, at the end, it's always is the prerogative of the patient to say, look, I just don't feel great and I'm just worried this may turn out to be something more. So it is very hard to say what should, uh, should be called or what should not be called. Uh, and this is something that's a very personal decision. Uh, the ambulance text also will not uh, to say, oh, no, it's my mistake, because, you know, uh, the ambulance techs are there to detect 
high-end emergencies. But if you, as the person, feels that, you know what, this might turn out to be something more, all the ambulance techs agree they will bring through and rather be assessed as casualty. And if everything's fine, to go back home after that. It's a very difficult thing. Does it overload the casualty? Sure, it does. But it is the nature of the business and it is the nature of, of what the emergency unit is there. For any reason that you're unsure, please come through. Yeah, good point there. Good point indeed. Uh, Assalamu alaikum. Noura Masi here. Jazakallah Shafata for always uh, interesting shows. And we enjoy Dr. Shonga. Uh, when is calcium chloride administered and what are the side effects? Jazakallah. Uh, how do you respond to that, uh, Dr. Shongwe? All right. So calcium chloride uh, is actually an IV medication. It is a medication that is used for a number of indications. So it's very difficult to say, and it depends on the context. Uh, I assume this patient may have received it while in hospital and probably had not had it explained as to why they were having it. To be honest, calcium chloride IV is mainly used in the cardiac space. Uh, we use it for patients that, uh, for any reason, where there uh, is a problem with other electrolytes which cause cardiac arrhythmia. So these are abnormal heart rhythms. Uh, one particular instance that I can think of in this space is probably either high or low potassium. So when uh, potassium is either high or low, uh, we want to protect the heart from having abnormal rhythms. And part, part of that is by us giving calcium. Uh, calcium is a very special mineral that uh, exists in the body. It makes the majority of your bones. But what most people don't know is that calcium is involved in uh, what we call contraction of muscles, all of your muscles. So your cardiac muscles, your skeletal muscles, your smooth muscles. So all the muscles, so those are, to give an examples, like say your bicep muscles, the skeletal muscle, obviously cardiac is your heart muscle. And smooth muscles, just think of your intestines and how they contract on their own. So those are muscles that you have no control over. But calcium is key to allowing them to contract and to relax as well. So in this situation where potassium is particularly high or low, we tend to give calcium and, you know, in, in, in emergency medicine, we actually say it stabilizes the cardiac, the myocardium. So it prevents it from going into an off-run of an arrhythmia or an abnormal rhythm. So high chance that's what it's been used for but calcium chloride is also there to treat primary problems with calcium itself. So if you have high calcium, which is called hypercalcemia, or low calcium, which is called hypokalemia, and it would be a uh, hypocalcemia, sorry, that would be where calcium chloride would come in. Uh, and Thank sorry, you. I forgot that the side effects, my apologies, I almost forgot to mention yes. about the side effects. The side effects. Uh, calcium, as I said, has a vast effect on multiple muscle groups. So excessive amounts of calcium can result in spasms of your skeletal muscles. 
So you can end up with what we call tetany or spasms of the muscles. Uh, it's quite, quite painful. And that's the side effect. But you would require very high doses. In fact, the doses that we use to even treat calcium abnormality are usually not sufficient to result in these side effects. Thank you again. This uh, question just says, Assalamu uh, alaikum, Shafaf, and welcome back to Dr. Shonga. Uh, it's Haji Peer here from uh, London, UK. Please explain what is IV injection for. Uh, yeah, I'm interested too, uh, Dr. Shonga. All right. So um, the, the question is probably, I assume that what he's wanting to find out, it was probably a particular uh, injection that we received. The term IV stands for intravenous. So what that means is that it's basically an injection that goes into the vein. So this can be administered with a syringe and needle or a drip needle that's been placed with the IV line connected and you inject via that. So anything that goes via the vein directly. So it is not a medication in itself, but it's describing the route of administration of drugs. So when we're talking about a drip, the drip is administered intravenously or IV. Uh, you know, other forms of administration we talk about, like when you take your tablets, we talk about per os or PO. You'll see on the, the doctor's prescription at the very end, we'll always say PO, 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 and that all stands for per os. Uh, you, you know about uh, suppositories that we place in the rectum. That one will say per rectum. So you'll see the term PR. Uh, if it goes into the ear, we'll talk about osteoardia. There's so many different terms for, and we have to have these terms to describe. So I think, uh, yeah. So I think basically that is to describe uh, all the uh, administrative um, uh, pathways uh, of how the drugs can be given. Assalamualaikum, Shafat. I was waiting when you bring Dr. Shongra back. Uh, what's the difference between uh, fentanyl and uh, morphine? Are there any pains uh, that nothing can suppress, doctor? Okay, so the difference between fentanyl and uh, morphine is actually the dose strength. Uh, the dose strength varies uh, in terms of uh, efficacy. So we talk about an entity in medicine called potency. So if we had to take morphine as a baseline of uh, opioids or, the, you know, the class of drug that morphine comes from is what we call the opioid, and we gave it a factor of one. So that is the baseline effect of, a, uh, of an opioid, morphine being one. Fentanyl is 10 times more potent than um, uh, morphine. There's also another one called sufentanyl, which... Uh, Equivocally, is also about a 10 times uh, factor of efficacy or potency. Um, there are other ones like remifentanil, which is roughly about 15 times more potent. So it varies from, uh, you know, it varies depending on the derivative. And they are uh, what we call synthetic morphine. So they have been developed in order to be more potent. One might ask, why do we need to have uh, drugs with different potencies? Uh, what we've found is that if they have higher potencies, we can give lower doses. So therefore, we actually avoid side effects. So um, there are various um, 
interventions where they are more preferred than others. It gets very, very technical, and this is a, a more an anesthetic uh, discussion, if I may put it that way. But um, they are all very effective pain medications, and they tend to be very, very well um, uh, well used within the hospital. Uh, I think myself in the emergency department, we primarily use morphine. You may have heard of pethidine and uh, fentanyl. Those are probably our top three opioids that we do use in emergency medicine. Assalamu alaikum, uh, Marcus. Assalamu alaikum to you, Shafat, and our Mufti Saab. I have a question for vibrant uh, Dr. Shonga. If a, pa- uh, push, uh, if a patient has a gallstone attack, what is administered in the ambulance, and how will doctor know if, uh, or the doctors know if gallbladder has burst? Uh, Jazakallah, Soli in Mallington. How do you respond there, Dr. Shonga? All right, so uh, a gallstone attack. Um, I, I like that it's actually called it an attack because that, that is probably the better, uh, better way of understanding. Uh, having gallstones on their own is not actually a, uh, a pathological problem. Uh, most people actually have gallstones and will never know. Some people will live their entire lives and only on autopsy be found to have gallstones, but ne- has never bothered them in their lives. So the, the, term, the reason I like the term attack is because it explains something. Obviously, having a gallbladder problem is usually when they're talking about now the stone has moved from being in the gallbladder to blocking off the drainage of the gallbladder. So it usually takes those stones moving into the drainage ducts, which we call the biliary ducts of the gallbladder, where now that obstruction prevents drainage of the gallbladder. There's two problems that come from this. Number one is the problem of drainage. So that means that the gall uh, solution, which we call bile, remains stagnant in the gallbladder. This usually results in bacterial uh, multiplication within that gallbladder and results in infection of the gallbladder. At this point, we call the condition a cholecystitis, and that is the gallbladder attack that we're talking about. It's obviously significantly painful. It causes nausea and vomiting. It can cause fever because it is an infection of the gallbladder. So how does one know if it's ruptured or not? Once it ruptures, the contents of the gallbladder, the bile, will now seep into your abdomen, the general um, area of your tummy and beyond. So the patient would be now what we call peritonitic. So when the doctor palpates or uh, touches the abdomen, the patient will scream blue murder when touching the abdomen. Uh, So we look for a sign for peritonism. Uh, uh, peritonism. So peritonism is a very uh, specific clinical entity which tells us that the lining of your abdomen has been irritated by something, whether infective material, bile, blood, or anything else to be uh, uh, that can spill over into the uh, to the abdomen. So once it is ruptured, that contents leaks out and causes peritonism, and this is where uh, the doctor now says, "Okay, it is first. Before peritonism sets in, there will be pain but no peritonism. So the abdomen is what's called tender, 
but not keratinistic. And this is how we differentiate between the two. Uh, it's actually not common for the gallbladder to burst. It's actually not a very common entity that's very rare. Uh, what happens is usually the pain from the infected gallbladder usually just picks up and gets more intense, more intense, more intense until something is done about it. Um, and I think that basically explains that. But in terms of what can be done, in, again, the pre-hospital setting, so from your home in the ambulance until you reach the emergency, the only thing that can truly be done is pain medication. So at this point, intravenous pain medication becomes quite important. Um, from the previous, uh, previous question about uh, morphine, Sometimes even morphine is used. We use anti-inflammatories, we use paracetamol, we use uh, opioids. So whatever gets that down, and then obviously we have to give something for nausea and vomiting. So an, what we call an intravenous anti-emetic, a drug that prevents emesis or prevents vomiting. Uh, and then we also like to give IV fluid. Those are sort of the three main things that can be done and is usually done in the ambulance prior to the uh, to coming into hospital. Thank you, Doc. And uh, this uh, question says, Assalamu alaikum uh, to Medical Files. Our favorite program, I underwent an operation. When I woke up, the only thing uh, paining was where the drip needles uh, was. The, nurse, uh, the nurses were battling to inject me and uh, time to take it out. They struggled. I had to say, let me do it myself because they were hurting me. Do you think nurses should train more comprehensively for drip insertions? Because I hear many complaints in this regard. Thank you, Dr. Shonga. Dani Masi in Lodium, doctor. Um, you know, uh, <laughs> Dani, um, I'm going to be honest with you. Drip insertion, no matter how many years, you've been in practice is a very humbling practice because there is no guarantee despite how many years you've been putting up drops. I, I've put in in ordinary amount of drops. I've lost count. I've done specialized drops, uh, what we call central venous lines, arterial lines. These are very specialized drops that go very close to the heart. And even in those situations, there are days Despite your best effort, it just doesn't go in. Drip insertion has so many caveats to it, and it also depends on your anatomy, your physiology, your age, your, your general health. Um, to give you an example, a patient who is a cancer patient who's been on chemotherapy are notorious for having what we call sclerosed vessels. Putting up a drip on such a patient is a near impossibility to the point where surgeons actually put in what we call an intravenous port so that they don't have, that nobody has to try and put up a drip ever again on this patient because it is impossible. So putting up a drip sometimes is a very difficult thing. And it's very difficult for me to say, uh, you know, to be honest, Nurses in private are probably the better providers of putting up a drip because they simply do much more than we do. Um, so in my opinion is that sometimes you're just having a bad day, but we have a method of dealing with this in hospital. We usually say uh, once one practitioner, whoever it is, whether it's a nurse, whether it's a doctor, has tried twice, 
another practitioner must try. So, you know, sometimes it's just not your day. Uh, unfortunately, I wish I could tell you that going to train more, um, it, it, it's very difficult because how do you train for this? Most of the training that is done for, say, medical students is done on dummies. But somebody at the end of the day is going to have to be the person who gets the needle in their arm in order for us to actually train uh, to do that. So, the, my, uh, you know, my, my caveat to this is that then who takes your place to, to get the training done in order to get the drip, uh, drip training? It's a, very, it's a very contentious issue. And I think uh, we just have to also have grace and say, you know, some days it's just not one practitioner's day, but they usually should try for another practitioner to try and go from there. Interesting indeed. Assalamu uh, alaikum, Medical Files on Marcus uh, is our priority listening. Always informative. Dr. Shonga was a very interesting previously. My question tonight, when is uh, Kanula injected? And uh, please tell me more about Kanula. Uh, wassalam, Yunus Isa. Hey, Kanula, doctor. I, I'm not exactly sure. I think what he means is a cannula. A, a cannula is the, um, the drip needle. I think people will just know it as the drip needle. So the, the, the device is called a cannula, and I'll explain why it's called a cannula. Uh, it comprises of two components. There is the hard needle metal component, and then there's an overlying sheet, which is called the cannula, the IV cannula. I think this goes back to that question that we had um, about IV injections. And that cannula is plastic. So we use the metal needle to penetrate the skin and penetrate the vein in order to get the cannula to sit inside the vein. Once the cannula is inside the vein, we actually remove, which, uh, you know, so we leave the sheath behind, but we actually remove the metal component uh, of the, the, the cannula and only leave the plastic component behind. This is obviously done because you can imagine a very hard metal insert uh, with the patient moving around would basically shred the vessel. So the plastic cannula allows us to continue administrating with the fluids, drugs, and so forth, and the patient can bend the arm or straighten the arm without any injury to them further. Uh, and it also rebounds into position uh, I'm sure you've seen sometimes with people with the drip, they'll say, please, uh, you know, keep your arms straight. And that's just to allow flow to continue, but it doesn't harm the patient. So I think that the answer to that is that whenever there's a need for intravenous drugs, especially when we have to give multiple drugs, um, I think this is very important to mention. You know, if we only have to give one drug, we can do what we call an intramuscular injection where we inject directly into the muscle. But where we need to give multiple drugs and we have to give it over a consistent amount of time or a consistent amount of volume over a particular time, then an IV cannula is placed in order to retain IV access or intravenous access and the drugs can be given consistently, repeatedly for days at a time, sometimes weeks at a time. It depends on your duration of stay in hospital. Well, I know what like cannula is now. And, uh, you know, I said like a real, uh, uh, you know, case in Canula. Hey, Canula, Canula. Uh, thank you very much for that.
Uh, you know, I did the the, the KZ and Ray. Hey, Kanul. Anyway, Doctor, and thank you very much for you know a, a brilliant uh, explanation there. Assalamu alaikum, medical files. Excellent program. Please refer to Doctor Shonga. How is it? Uh, how is it that antibiotics given in the buttocks works faster than orally? I'm interested to know. Yes, sir, in Glenwood, Doctor. Well, he, uh, Yasser is in my neighborhood because I live in Umbilo, so I'm very close to him. <laughs> Hello, Yasser. Uh, I, to answer this, it's very simple. Um, you know, administration of any drug, uh, regardless of which it is, uh, whether antibiotics or any other form of medication, as I mentioned, there are multiple routes of administration. Uh, we've now mentioned, uh, we've mentioned the, the cannula, the cannula, uh, for the, the IV administration, we've mentioned for us, which is the oral medication, which he's, he's mentioning here. We've mentioned intramuscular. Now, the buttock injection is an example of an intramuscular injection. So if you think about a muscle, the reason we like intramuscular is because the muscles are a very easy entity to access because you can feel it, you can touch it. You can inject you into it, and it also has a very dedicated blood supply. So it's almost equivalent to the intravenous injection uh, in the sense that it goes into the veins very quickly. Uh, at a slower rate to some degree than the intravenous. The intravenous, in all intents and pur uh, purposes, is almost instantaneous. Intramuscular near instantaneous and then oral medication you still have to get it into the stomach it needs to be metabolized and then absorbed by the, the intestinal wall into the circulation so they're sort of like in order of slowest is the oral uh, uh, second fastest is the intramuscular and there's another one which i think all the diabetics know when they're injecting the insulin subcutaneous is also another form uh, of uh, administration, and then the fastest being intravenous. So uh, my answer to him is that by injecting in the muscles, the antibiotics uh, gets into your circulation far quicker than in the oral sense, so therefore it gets to working quicker. Uh, but I think the question that uh, the, the, the listener, yes sir, actually wants to know is which one of these of these are the more preferable? Because I think everybody wants the quickest action of any drug, uh, you know, to, to get to them. So, you know, I'm sick now, doc. I want to be cured now. The truth is, is that regardless of which administration, it actually doesn't speed up your time of cure. The time of cure of the infection is dependent on where the infection is in the body, how accessible this infection is by, uh, by the antibiotics, for instance, if it's in the brain, regardless whether you go oral, whether you go intravenous, intramuscular, the time to clearing of the infection will be more or less the same because it still has to traverse a membrane we call the blood-brain barrier. And that one is the leveling field for all of the administration things. So it doesn't matter really, but the only reason why, like if you're having, let's say, a meningitis that we want to go into penis, is that in those settings, we want the highest dose to arrive at the brain. Now, uh, all of these infections, if they're mild, 
we want to use the least invasive method. I mean, you can imagine if you thought that every single time you went to see the doctor, you're getting an injection, the chances of you coming to visit us is very rare. And it also opens up the risk of um, uh, uh, complications, for instance, with intramuscular injection. You can very theoretically, and I do say this happens, almost never happens, is infections within the skin or within the muscle because of the injection, all of these type of things, and also side effects. There are less chance of side effects given by the oral route versus the IV route, but it's always the indication of what is your time limit to resolve the issue. Is this a life-threatening infection? If it is, intravenous is always the answer. If it's not life-threatening, for instance, a sinusitis or a pharyngitis, oral is the preferable route. There's a lot of caveats to, uh, to choosing the route, and unfortunately, this you have to uh, rely on the uh, expertise of your healthcare provider, whether GP, emergency, surgeon, um, physician, whoever you're encountering. They will tell you which is the best route for administration to, one, avoid complications, side effects, and how life-threatening the infection could be and why they would say rather IV. But like I said, if it's life-threatening, you can just take your bottom dollar that no doctor is going to say any other route besides IV. I'll uh, talk on the lighter note, uh, maybe the dollar hmm, will be replaced soon, you tell me. Yeah, but uh, Doctor, a, a brilliant uh, conversation uh, this evening. Uh, we've uh, got about a minute and a half to go before we uh, end off the show. Perhaps uh, your parting words uh, this evening? My parting words is uh, uh, thank you so much for all of these questions. They are absolutely relevant questions, and I think uh, I, I think this this just reflects um, you know, the, the lack of availability of information in the medical spaces to the general public. And uh, I would definitely love to be back on the show to, again, answer more questions because I, I love this and I feel this empowers the, the average person to know when to seek help, when not to seek help. And, you know, what, what does it mean to live a healthy life? I think that is something, if we can, maybe on a, on a, on the next show that I'm on to discuss what healthy living actually means. I think that that's absolutely brilliant, uh, you know, healthy living. And, you know, by the way, we have just come out from a brilliant month called Ramadan, where we fasted from dawn to dusk. And, uh, you know, uh, I mean, uh, spiritually, we fed our souls and uh, physically our body went six pack. So, you know, I hope and pray that, you know, we, we keep that uh, balance and, uh, you know, I, I, I would love to hear your perspective of healthy living, you know. And uh, as you earlier on says, you know, even the dietary uh, law is important, the type of food you eat and how healthy you keep. And a healthy mind, a healthy body uh, makes for a powerful human being like yourself, uh, Dr. Mario Shonga. You have a blessed evening ahead. We'll talk to you soon and enjoy the rest of your evening, uh, Doctor. Thank you so much. I'll speak to you soon. And uh, salam alaikum to all the listeners. Thank you so much. Ah, brilliant indeed. Hey, he's greeting you people. And uh, 
you are a man of peace. I felt your peace there, Doctor. So, uh, yes, uh, soon we'll have you soon. Yeah. Time for us to go for, a, uh, for the Isha Azan, and inshallah we will continue after that.